Chapter Twenty Two of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Two, A Real Benefactor. Bob, the hammer thrower and the monocle man, together entered the little station house in the village. It wasn't much of a lock-up, but it was big enough to hold Bob and a few others, one of whom had just been released as the trio of newcomers walked in. His eye fell on Bob. "'That's my man!' he exclaimed excitedly. "'That's my escaped patient!' "'Yes, that's he,' affirmed a second voice, that of the Commodore. "'Got him this time!' came jubilantly from another side of the bare room, and Bob gazing, with no show of emotion in that direction, discovered Dicky and Clarence were there too. "'Put me in the padded cell, would you?' said the maniac medico furiously. "'I'll see where you go. Come on! The car is waiting. There won't be any window bouquets this time, I promise you.' Bob didn't answer. He didn't much care what they said. "'I got Gigi on the phone,' went on Dan viciously. "'And she has it all down in black and white,' she tells me. "'The legal light up there has attended to that. A parcel of outrageous falsehoods. The audacity of that girl, too. When I showed her the enormity of her conduct, she only gave a merry little laugh. Said she was terribly fond of me, the minx. And would I come and sit in the front row when she was a bright and scintillating star? And she said Gidup wanted to know if I wouldn't like to gaze upon that cute little freckle once more, added Clarence in choked tones. And all that on account of you, exclaimed the Commodore, throwing out his arms and looking at the culprit. Dickie didn't say anything at the moment. He only glared. Bob regarded the three with lacklustre gaze. He felt little interest in them now. "'Take him away,' said Dan, breathing hard, "'or I may do him an injury.' "'Give him what's coming to him,' breathed Dickie hoarsely. "'He's got my girl hypnotized.' "'Come on,' said the maniac medico sternly to Bob. "'Let's waste no more time.' "'Hold on,' spoke the monocle man quietly. "'You are a little premature, gentlemen. "'What do you want to butt in for?' demanded the Commodore aggressively of the monocle man. "'Mr. Bennett has accompanied me here as my prisoner. Am I not right?' appealing to the hammer-thrower. "'Correct,' said the gentleman, regretfully. "'What's he been doing besides wrecking homes?' asked the Commodore. "'A few articles of jewellery have been missing at Mrs. Ralston's,' said the hammer-thrower in that same tone. "'It's a very regrettable affair.' Miss Gerald, for example, lost her ring, and it was traced to Mr. Bennett. Bob stood it patiently. He wondered if his day would ever come. "'So? He's the merry little social highwayman, is he?' observed Dan. "'The best I can say is, don't make a hero of him. Give him some real old-fashioned justice.' "'I'm afraid I can't honestly extend my sympathy to you,' remarked Clarence to Bob stiffly. "'I'm not sorry.' said Dickie, frankly. I'm glad. Anyhow, Miss Dolly will despise you now, with a ring of triumph in his voice. No, she won't, observed Bob, breaking silence for the first time. It was being what people think I am that made her fall in love with me. He didn't want Dickie to feel too good. He remembered that unsportsmanlike punch. She's my dear jolly little pal, Bob went on, and she wanted to occupy an adjoining cell. Dickie went up to Bob. "'I'd like to give you another,' he said in his nastiest accents. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen!' It was the voice of the man at the desk. Authority now spoke. 
Up to now, amazement had held authority tongue-tied. The prisoner came quietly, Mr. Moriarty? Authority knew, then the monocle man. Evidently the two had a secret understanding. Has he confessed? Not as yet, said the monocle man, significantly. And I'm not going to, spoke up Bob succinctly to the magistrate. I'm not guilty. Then who is? asked the monocle man. You've got your hand on his arm, said Bob in that same forcible manner. The time had come for him to assert himself, however ridiculous his affirmation might sound. Authority should have the truth. Bob blurted it out fearlessly, holding his head well up as he spoke. "'You've got your hand on his arm,' he repeated. Mr. Moriarty's reply quite took their breath away, especially Bob's. "'Guess you're right,' he said promptly, and something bright gleamed in his hand. "'Don't move,' he said to the hammer-thrower. "'But aren't you going to lock him up at all?' asked the Commodore, in disappointed tones, indicating Bob after the monocle man had shown the hammer-thrower a warrant for his arrest, and had, at the conclusion of certain formalities, caused that dazed and angry individual to be led away. "'I'm certainly not going to lock Mr. Bennett up,' laughed the monocle man, who was in the best of humours. The coup seemed to him a lovely one. For months he had been on the trail of the hammer-thrower. He told Bob, as dazed and bewildered as the hammer-thrower by the unexpected turn of events, all about it later. He had certainly taken an artistic way to complete the affair. And later, not that night, Bob learned, too, that it was Miss Gerald herself who had suggested the way, she having inherited some of the managerial genius of her father. Maybe she was not averse to Bob's suffering a little, after the wholly intolerable way he had comported himself toward her and others of her aunt's guests. Maybe cruelty had mingled somewhat with retaliation. Proud, regal young womanhood sometimes can be cruel. But Bob probably deserved all those twinges and pangs and mournful emotions she had caused him. No one certainly had ever talked to her as he had done. "'May I sit down?' said Bob at length to the magistrate. He felt rather tired. Authority gave him permission to sit. "'Well, if you're not going to lock him up,' said the maniac med, looking viciously at Bob, "'I am.' "'No, you're not.' observed the monocle man easily. Mr. Bennett is my friend. He has helped me immensely in this affair. Had he not projected his rather impetuous personality into it, certain difficulties would not have been smoothed out so easily. He created a diversion which threw the prisoner, naturally deep and resourceful, somewhat off his guard. But for Mr. Bennett's whimsical and, at times, diverting conduct, with a smile at Bob, my fight against him, nodding toward the cell, might not have culminated quite so soon. So, he added to the enraged medico, Mr. Bennett has my full moral support, and I may say, touching the pocket into which he had returned that something bright, my physical support as well. But what about the treatment I have received? stormed the med. Locked up like you shouldn't have been prowling around. Anyhow, I shall advise my good friend Mr. Bennett that should you seek to annoy him further, or to lay a single finger on him, he will have an excellent case for damages. I can explain away a great deal that is inexplicable to the rest of you, and that explanation will serve fully to rehabilitate Mr. Bennett in the esteem of certain people as a not unnormal person. How far I can restore his popularity, with a laugh, is another matter. Bob stared straight ahead. How did you do it? he said to the monocle man. What made you certain? 
I saw him place the ring in your pocket. Feel here, walking over to Bob. The latter felt where the other indicated. A little vest pocket camera, said the monocle man softly. I photographed the act, the outstretched hand with the ring in it. You, unsuspecting, half sprawling over the green felt of the table, your coat-tails inviting the ring. Besides, one of my men took the place of that outside operator, and received a certain little article of jewellery that night you came blundering back to Mrs. Ralston's. We nabbed the outside operator, and, well, he's told certain things, with satisfaction. We have, in short, a clear case. Bob held his head. It's whirling, he said. I'll get some things straightened out after a while, I suppose. That's right, observed the monocle man. There are some things you can't straighten out, said Dan, in an ugly tone. This is all very well for you, but what about us? Just at that moment there was a flutter of skirts at the door. Gee Gee and Gidup came in, the former in a state of great agitation. How dared you? she gasped, going up to the monocle man and standing with arms akimbo. Sending you that note, commanding your presence here, said the monocle man. I dared, my dear he added slowly, because I hold the cards. Don't you dear me, she retorted stormily. I wouldn't, seriously, he returned. It might be dangerous. Women like you are dangerous, you know. I fancy our friends here, glancing toward the Commodore and Clarence, have found that out. But it will be a lesson. We'll never wander more from our own fireside, he hummed. Well, said Gigi, shaking her auburn tresses, those were pretty bold statements of what you could do to me in that note you sent. They were true, my dear. The green eyes flared. Gigi was shaking all over. Gidup looked rather frightened. Take it easy, said the monocle man. I'd like to see you prove what you can do, she returned. You say I have framed up a lot of falsehoods, a tissue of lies, in that affidavit the lawyer at Mrs. Ralston's drew up. I tell you they're all true. Dan looked weak. Everything I've told happened just as I said it did, and he knows it, pointing a finger at the Commodore. I wonder if I ought not to put you in jail now, said the monocle man meditatively. There's a cell vacant next to the hammer-thrower. You would be congenial spirits. It's proofs I'm asking, Mr. Detective, retorted Gigi, apparently not greatly abashed by this threat. She was accustomed to hitting back. Yes, it's proofs said Gidup, but in weaker accents. The monocle man shook a reproving finger at Gidup. "'You're in bad company, my dear,' he observed. "'You're out of Gee Gee's class. You're just trying to be in it.' "'I don't want any of your impertinence,' answered Gidup, with a faint imitation of Gee Gee's manner. "'He's a proper bad one,' pointing to Clarence, who presented a picture of abject misery. "'And when I tell all the things he done to me—' "'But you won't tell them.' "'I have.' defiantly, in that paper the lawyer drew up. "'But you're going to sign a little paper I have here, repudiating all that,' he answered her. "'Oh, am I?' elevating her turned-up nose. "'You are,' blandly. "'Guess again,' said Gidup saucily. "'You can't prove what we told in that affidavit isn't true,' reaffirmed Gigi. "'Only she and Gidup could know it was a frame-up. They had built carefully and were sure of their ground.' We know our rights, and we're going to have them. We're not afraid of you. Then why are you here? Quietly. That lawyer at the house said we might as well see you, just to call your bluff. 
He said, since we had told the truth, we had nothing to fear. I don't think you're quite so confident as you seem, observed the monocle man. My note awoke a little uneasiness, or you wouldn't be here. This young lady, turning to get up, suffered a mild case of stage fright, if I am any judge of human nature. Me? said Giddup. I defy you. Here's the answer, replied the monocle man, taking another paper from his pocket. What's that? said Gee Gee scornfully. I suppose it's some lies from him, alluding to the Commodore. The lawyer told me to be prepared for them. No, it isn't that. It's only a stenographic report of a conversation you and your friend had together in your room, the night you arrived at Mrs. Ralston's. A stenographic report? Nonsense! Sharply. Gigi remembered all about that conversation. How could you— There's a dictograph in the room you occupied, my dear, observed the monocle man. A dic— Gigi seemed to turn green. Good God! she said. It wasn't very long thereafter that Gigi and Gidup departed. Back to the old life, said Gigi wearily and just when I thought my ambition to be a star was coming true. Life is sure tough, observed Giddup, abandoning her society manner. I'm sick of the whole thing. Got a mind to jump in the river. Gas for me, from poor Giddup wearily. No, you won't, and I won't. We'll just go on. Lord, how long? Anyhow, that detective promised to introduce us to a real Russian Grand Duke who's in old New York. Maybe we can get in the papers on that. Perhaps, more thoughtfully from Gee Gee, it wasn't so worse of the detective to promise that, after he'd got us down and walked on us. You must make Dookie drink out of your slipper, suggested Giddup. The detective said he was mad after beautiful stage girls. Grand Dukes always are, hopefully. And if you do make him do that, it would be heralded from coast to coast. It's as good as done, said Gee Gee confidently. It'll prove me a great actress, sure, in a brighter tone. I always said you had talent, remarked Giddup. Cheese it, retorted Gee Gee elegantly. Ain't you the fond flatterer? Anyhow, I'm glad I don't have to do society talk any more, said Giddup, and stuck a piece of gum in her mouth. Yes, said Gee Gee, my jaws is most broke. Maybe you'd better tighten up your hobble a little for Dookie, suggested Giddup. Have to stand still the rest of my life if I did, observed Gee Gee, swishing along about six inches a step. You could divide it a little. So I could. By this time they had forgotten about the river or taking gas. The Duke had already become a real person in their lives, and they talked on, devising stunts for his vivacious greatness. By this time, too, the monocle man seemed to them a real benefactor. Meanwhile, the real benefactor had been reading from that stenographic report to Dan and the others. The Commodore nearly jumped out of his boots for joy. Read that again, he said. The monocle man, reading, This ain't half bad enough. You think up something now, Gee Gee. Doping a poor little thing is always good stuff to spring on a jury, get up. And you could make yourself up young with your hair done up in a pigtail with a cute little baby blue bow on the end. But that sounds old, Gee Gee. You can sure invent something new, etc., etc. The monocle man finished reading, and laid down the paper. There you are, gentlemen, he observed in a lively tone. The stenographers will swear to that. 
They were dressed as housemaids, but at night and on certain occasions they used one of the rooms Mrs. Ralston placed at my disposal as an office. When I came down here I didn't expect to be involved in a domestic drama. It rather forced itself upon me. It came as part of the day's work. I overheard your conversation with Miss Dolly that night, significantly to Bob. That young gentleman flushed. I have taken the liberty of destroying the report of that conversation, I may add. Miss Dolly is charming. With a smile. I also had a record of your conversation with these three gentlemen, indicating Dan, Clarence, and Dickie, after they entered your room one night, via the trellis and the window. That conversation introduced me into the domestic drama. I became an actor in it, whether I would or not. But for my whispered instructions to one of my assistants in the garden, you three gentlemen would have been arrested. Dan stared at Clarence in momentary consternation. You did not need the golf club, because my man removed the dog. It seems, said Dan effusively to the monocle man, you have been our good angel. If any remuneration— No, answered the monocle man. What I have done for you was only incidental, and my reward was the enjoyment I got out of the affair, in watching how the threads crossed and recrossed, and how they tangled and untangled. It was better than going to a show. It made work a pleasure. Besides, I shall be well rewarded for what I have accomplished in another direction, looking toward the cell. I tried to get him in England and failed. In France the story was the same. He is rather a remarkable personality, a born criminal and an actor as well. Of good family, he wedged his way into society through the all-round amateur athletic route. He was generally well-liked. Bob thought of Miss Gerald and looked down. He couldn't help wondering if she would not greatly have preferred his occupying that cell, instead of the other man who had seemed to interest her so much. "'Now, for Mrs. Dan,' observed the Commodore, jubilantly waving the stenographic report, "'this will bring her to time.' "'And my wife, too,' said Clarence, with equal joy. "'I thought I would save you gentlemen some trouble, and so have already placed the report in the lady's hands,' said the monocle man affably. Indeed, they came to me afterward and told me they had been shamefully deceived. Mrs. Dan looked as if she had had a good cry, from joy, no doubt. Mrs. Clarence's voice was tremulous. Same cause, I am sure. I think you will find them contrite and anxious to make up. This is great, said Dan. Glorious, observed Clarence. Think of it. No public disgrace. No being held up as monsters in the press. It's too good to be true. The Commodore threw out his arms and advanced toward the monocle man. But the latter waved him away. "'Save your embraces for your wives,' he observed. "'I love all the world,' said Dan. "'Me too,' from Clarence. "'I presume I am free to take my departure, gentlemen,' said Bob, rising. "'You are free as the birds of the air for all of me,' answered the monocle man. "'Hold on one moment,' begged the Commodore. "'No. I'm not going to detain you forcibly. As a friend, I ask you to wait. Bob paused. I'm a good fellow, said Dan effusively, and I don't wish the world harm. I don't want you to go wandering around any more as you are. Why, you're a regular Frankenstein. You're an iron automaton that goes about trampling on people. After all I've gone through, I have charity toward others. I won't have you treading on people's finer sensibilities, and smashing connubial peace and comfort all to splinters. But what can I do? suggested Bob. He meant the three weeks weren't up yet. 
Here's what I propose to Clarence and Dickie. I see now you'll win anyhow. You've got the grit and the nerve. So as long as we have simply got to pay in the end, why not do so at once, and so spare others? That'll be the way I'll pay him, alluding to the monocle man. It's my way of showing my gratitude for what he's done. And now I think of it, I can't see that I ought to blame you so much, Bob, for all that has transpired. Oh, you don't? With faint irony. No, you only did what you had to, and maybe we were a little rough. Forget it. The Commodore extended his hand. The act melted Bob. He took it. Good friends once more, chirped Dan, and extended an arm to include Clarence. You've won. The money's fairly yours, Bob. Only as a personal favor, I ask you to be at once as you were. Be your old natural self immediately. I'll pay my share to have him that way again, said Clarence heartily. I want to spare the world, too. Besides, he's won all right enough. It's three weeks or nothing from me, said Dickie. You chaps may want to spare the world, but I don't want to spare him. I'll pay for Dickie, replied good old Dan, and gladly. Dickie shrugged. Dan wrote out a check. Congratulations, he said, and for us, too, turning to Clarence. Think of the thousands in alimony it might have cost us. We've simply got to call a halt on old Bob, said Clarence fervently. Bet's off. We lose. Bob took the check. I believe I'm entitled to it, for I certainly would have stuck it out now. I am sure I wouldn't do it all over again, though, for ten times the amount. Nevertheless, I thank you. He shook himself. Free! Isn't it great? Will you do something for me? To the monocle man. Gladly was the reply. I was secretly informed of that wager of yours, and I was immensely interested in your little social experiment. You see, I make my living by prevarication and subterfuges, and that, with a laugh, is more than a man can make by telling the truth. It's a wicked world. Fraud and humbug are trumps. What I want you to do, said Bob, ignoring this homily, is to express my grip to New York. Also, tell Miss Gerald that I've gone, and kindly thank Mrs. Ralston and Miss Gerald for asking me down. Why don't you thank them yourself? I think they would be more pleased if I complied with the formalities by proxy. Shall I add you had a charming time? You may use your own judgment. Bob walked to the door. I guess it's I who am crazy, said the maniac doctor, again waking up. End of chapter 22